All right, I'm going to dive right into the uh, message today. And as you well know, uh, we've been in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 is the uh, chapter we're in today. And so you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. But the question that I want to start out by uh, our message this morning by asking you is this. Have you ever had to trust someone with information? Or have you ever had to trust somebody with valuables? Or have you ever had to trust somebody with children or a key to your house? We have a tendency to, to trust people with a lot of things in our lives. And um, sometimes it is very difficult to know who we can trust and who we, who we can't trust. Some people will ask to come back and be babysitters and some people we won't. Uh, we'll entrust things to certain people because we know that those people are trustworthy. When we have uh, moments in our lives when we give something to somebody, we have a, a certain amount of value attached to those things, and we give those things to somebody expecting that they will give us something in return, that they are trustworthy, these weighty things that we entrust to other people. Uh, we have a tendency actually to do this more than we think about because um, uh, we even trust people with our bags at the airport. Are you ever think of that? Like, that's a lot of trust. You're giving your valuables to somebody you don't even know or a bunch of people you don't know, hoping that it ends up where it should at the end of the day. And typically, it doesn't. Uh, but interestingly enough, some, uh, some airports have known to be places where the, uh, the baggage handlers help themselves to whatever's in the bag. Now, I know this is going to freak some of you out if you're thinking that you might be going somewhere uh, soon. But I was amazed when I started doing research on what people put in their checked bags. I always carry the valuable stuff with me on the plane, like in the overhead or something. But a lot of people put stuff in their check bags that's really, really valuable. There's a story that came out two years ago about putting valuables into checked bags. And there was two airports that were terrible for having things stolen out of bags that had been checked in at the front. I bet you can guess what those two airports were. You're going you're gonna to guess and you're going to feel bad if you get it. It wasn't O'Hare and it wasn't Midway, all right? So uh, we're all off the hook around here. The two worst places in America where you checked your bag and you're not sure if you're going to get whatever you checked in when you arrive were Washington, uh, were, I'm sorry, were Florida, uh, Miami, and also, can you guess the other one? LaGuardia. Uh, no, not LaGuardia. Interesting. JFK. That's close. It was close. JFK. And so what they did was they installed cameras at these two places and they caught these people stealing all kinds of stuff. In fact, here's the article, here's how part of the article went. The camera showed baggage handlers stealing items on flights bound for Israel, including a $5,000 Seiko watch, iPhones, iPads, cameras, gold rings, and cash. Who puts cash in a checked bag? I mean, maybe you do and I'm, you know, I don't mean to make you feel bad if you do, but hopefully you won't anymore. Um, it was so bold. These people were so bold in taking stuff out of bags that the handlers called it. That when they talked to the handlers, uh, they said that it was so obvious and there's so many people doing it. It was like everybody was going on a shopping spree. Have you ever considered what God entrusts you with? You think about all the things that God entrusts us with. So if we give our lives to him, we're entrusted with the Holy Spirit. We're entrusted with the message of the gospel. We are his ambassadors. Uh, the ambassadors of his gospel to those around us. He entrusts us with prayer. That's the ability that we have to go to God anytime that we want. We're entrusted with all of these weighty things that God entrusts us with that we would do a good job with. We're entrusted with baptism. 
Baptism is one of those things that um, God allows us to participate in that holds great weight. It's a valuable thing. We're going to talk about that this morning. The question at this point, though, is I want you to just be thinking about this is, am I a trustworthy person? God entrusts me with, with kids, with property, with, with, with money, with, with his salvation, with his gospel, with his Holy Spirit. Am I a trustworthy person? Daniel 9 is all about a trustworthy person. Daniel 9 is one of the pivotal, verse, uh, pivotal chapters in Scripture. In fact, one, one commentator said, it's the chapter in Scripture upon which the backbone of prophecy, prophecy lies. If you're looking at prophecy in Scripture, you have to look at Daniel chapter 9. And yet, Daniel chapter 9 is not specifically about prophecy. The majority of Daniel chapter 9 is about a prayer from a humble heart. A prayer from Daniel. God entrusted Daniel with a lot already, and now he was about to trust him with a whole lot more. Let me give you a little bit of background on Daniel chapter 9. This is the first year that King Darius is king. So it's about two years after our last visit with Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. Babylon has fallen, the Medes and the Persians have moved in, Darius is king. And Daniel is seeing all of this history unfold before him. He's seeing, uh, he's seeing everything that God had showed him in Daniel 8 and 7. He's seeing all of this unroll in front of his eyes. Prophecy is literally coming true in front of his eyes. Babylon has fallen just like it was prophesied. Medes and the Persians came in just like it was prophesied. Nebuchadnezzar's statue, remember that statue in chapter 2? That's being constructed before Daniel's eyes. And Daniel's anticipating what will come next. Now, let me ask you, if you were Daniel and you were given a vision as to, okay, this is what comes next, and now next, what comes next, here's, here's the next event you should look for. And last chapter we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes, and that is an evil guy. And he's going to come along. How would you feel if you were Daniel and you were seeing these things unfold before your eyes? Wouldn't you start looking and starting thinking to yourself, all right, I got to do some mathematical calculations. I need to start figuring out what comes next. I need to start figuring out what's next on the agenda. So he begins to do some calculations. And this is how we enter into Daniel 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So you get this? Daniel literally pulls up a chair and he sits down and he thinks to himself, prophecy is being unfolded before my eyes. He pulls out a piece of paper and he starts doing some calculations and thinking to himself, how long do I have left? What comes next? And I know Antiochus, this evil guy that's going to do these terrible things, is right around the corner. How much time do I have left? Daniel is devastated by what he saw in chapter, uh, chapter 8. You remember the last thing that we saw is Daniel passed out. He, could, he was sick for days after what he saw in Daniel chapter 8. And now he starts trying to figure out how much time he has before the next thing would happen in the, in the, uh, uh, as, as history unrolls before him. So Daniel chapter 9 um, begins with Daniel's prayer. Instead of freaking out, instead of worrying, instead of wondering and, and fretting about things, Daniel stops and he prays. And like I said, most of Daniel 9 is about his prayer. And if you've never read this prayer, I wish we had our overheads, I'd like to read it to you, but I'm not going to be able to. So I'll pick out some passages that will kind of uh, pique your interest. God actually gives Daniel this crucial part of prophecy 
This is the best chapter in all scripture. Jesus quotes from this chapter we look into today. This is the best chapter in all of, all of uh, the Old Testament about what is to come. And all of it happens after Daniel gives this incredible prayer. And my guess is because of his prayer. In verse 3, Daniel turns his face to the Lord. Daniel says, I sought the Lord in my prayer and my pleas for mercy with, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Calvin says we can truly believe God in his direction in the future when he stimulate when we believe God in his direction for the future that's what stimulates us to greater prayer. I think this is really really compelling because Daniel could have just said everything's going to happen and I don't have anything to say about it. But instead of that instead of instead of taking a passive approach he knows the devastation that is to come and it drives him closer to the Lord in prayer. It's kind of like putting your kid in a timeout. When you put your kid in a timeout, they've done something wrong, they've done something to disappoint you, and so you've put them in, they've, they've broken the rules, and you put them in a timeout. Now, you don't want to do it, they don't want you to do it, but you know you have to do it, and you pray to God that while they're in that timeout, their heart changes, right? And then you call them out of the timeout, and how would you feel if they did exactly the same thing that they did when they went into the timeout? You'd think to yourself, you've wasted your time. What, didn't you think about what you did while you were in the timeout? Didn't you? And, and so you as a parent are just praying to God that a heart will change during the timeout session. The Israelites have been thrown into captivity, allowed to be put into captivity by God. 70 years. Babylon went in, destroyed Jerusalem, carried them into exile, and they've been 70 years in captivity. Daniel knows that's about to end. And Daniel begins praying and petitioning and talking to God like somebody who has been put in a time out, who has learned their lesson and begins to cry out to God on behalf of his people. And the thing that I find most interesting is about Daniel's prayer. Like if there's anybody in the Old Testament by now that we've been reading about that should stand out to us as an exceptionally good Christian, it would be Daniel. And yet... Daniel uses the pronoun our or us or we 23 times in his prayer. And here's how it sounds. I've only picked out a couple. In verse 8, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse 10, We have not obeyed the voice of our Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us, by his servants, the prophets. Verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people up out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. You can read all through this. It's an amazing prayer of Daniel. But Daniel never says, look at what my brothers did. Look at what my fathers did. Look at what they did. He always says, this is what we have done. We have gone through this. We have learned our lesson. We are broken. We are guilty. It is our sin. And he takes it on himself. In fact, in verse 16, he says, please let not your destruction come on Jerusalem because of our sin. I love Daniel because he's an empathetic leader for his people. This is a trustworthy steward who has been given wonderful gifts by God, gifts that he has used to point other people to Jesus Christ, to point other people to Yahweh God. 
And because of his trustworthiness and because of the humble heart we see, even in his prayer here, God reveals to him this amazing prophecy. It gives him far more than he could have ever hoped for. And I got to tell you, I don't have time to get into the prophecy this morning. I wish I did. Uh, it is an amazing prophecy about seven sevens and the weeks and, and what is to come, even in the end. It talks about it talks about Antiochus Epiphanes who will come up in 200 years. It talks about the 70 years captivity that is about to end. It talks about all of these things. And he said, and, and a part of it is even about the end times, what we have not even experienced yet. What is to come for us? God reveals to Daniel all of these visions of what is to come for his future and for the future of Israel and for the future of the church. And the one thing that's really cool about this, not cool, but noteworthy, is that all of the judgments that take place all occur in similar rhythms. And so the people of, uh, of um, Jerusalem, the, the Israelites, have been taken into captivity, and that's because they disobeyed God. They, and God poured his judgment out, and they were taken into captivity. Seven years captivity, timeout session. Hopefully they learned their lesson. They're coming back to Jerusalem. They rebuild Jerusalem. Well, in 200 years, Antiochus is going to come up. He's going he's to uh, devastate Jerusalem. He's going to commit the abomination of desolation like we've talked about in our, our time past. And after that, there's going to be an, another rhythm. These rhythms will always occur. And I, I turn on the TV and I'm thinking to myself, are we in a rhythm right now? Are we in a similar rhythm where God's people have not stood up for his truth and so he removes his hand a little bit. Evil comes, oppression comes, persecution comes, and the church gets stronger through it. The church rises through it. They, we find out what's really important and we get rid of all the stuff that's not. And then we rise up and just like all of these rhythms, this is what happens. And then huge oppression comes on the church. It happens every single time. It happened last century under, under Hitler in Germany. It, happened, it, it happens all the times. These rhythms are similar as we go through. And the end time, the one has not happened yet, the worst of all will occur in the same kind of rhythm. In fact, Jesus picks up on Daniel and he says, when you're looking for what is, what is the end times, what is the very end, this is what Jesus says. And this is now 500 years after Daniel. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, isn't that interesting? Well, the abomination of desolation under Antiochus happened 200 years before Jesus was born. And now Jesus is speaking and he says, when you see another abomination of desolation occur, one yet to come, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, when you see him standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then let those who are, listen to this, this is how bad the end rhythm is going to be. We've seen some rhythms in our world. Persecution, church gets stronger, huge oppression, and then these rhythms always occur. But in the end, this is how bad it's going to be. Jesus says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. In other words, pity those women. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as have not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, it will never be again. Do you know what that means? If you think the church has gone through or is going through persecution today, there is a time coming in the end that will be far worse than anything we've experienced so far. Jesus says in Matthew 24 later on, he says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise 
and perform great signs and wonders, and so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's you if you know Jesus. In other words, the last rhythm that takes place, the last time that an antichrist will rise up, it'll be so compelling that if the church were here, we would be led astray by him ourselves. Is that crazy weird? That's scary? Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9 is about the end of days, the end of all things. The time when all of this ends and Christ comes back and builds his kingdom and we dwell with him forever. Many antichrists will come between now and then. They will feel unstoppable, just like Alexander the Great, just like Antiochus Epiphanes, just like Kim Jong-un or Il, or pick, pick your despot of the day. They will seem like they are unstoppable. They will seem invincible. They will think that they are invincible. In Daniel 9, it says that they're willing to take on the Prince of Peace himself. They, they will bring great oppression and persecution. The church will strengthen, and then there will be terrible abominations against God's people. But all of these seasons are limited. They don't last forever. Even the last one only lasts for a short time. And in the end, God always wins. So the question is, if you're in the middle of one of these rhythms, huge persecution, oppression of the church, which I think we might be on the borderline right now of that happening in America. I, I may not be right on that, but I know it's happening around the world to our brothers and sisters. If we find ourselves in one of those rhythms where churches are being burned down and parents are being dragged away and heads are being cut off, what should the church do? And we take our cue from Daniel. We should do what Daniel did. Daniel knew what was coming. And what did Daniel do? He prayed. And brothers and sisters, we, we should be praying. This is why God found Daniel trustworthy. In fact, he says in verse 23, he says, if you're wondering why I gave you this huge prophecy, this huge vision of what is to come, God says to the, Daniel, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, Consider the word and understand the vision. The point of this passage is not on prophecy. Or it's not on prayer. The point of this passage is on prophecy, but the prophecy would not happen were it not for the prayer. From a, from a humble, broken, gentle heart. So the question I have for you is this. Can God trust you, like he trusted Daniel, can he trust you with weighty things? Jesus is a weighty thing. What do I mean by that? 1 Peter 1.7, Peter tells us, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may, to be, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is given to us as a weighty thing. God gives us and entrusts us with his son, Jesus Christ. The question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with that information? You know Jesus saved you from your sins? Fantastic. What do you do with it? Because what you've been given in the information that you know and have accepted as your, as your own is that Jesus saves from sin. Jesus promises an eternity with him. What do you do with that information? That's a weighty thing. Peter says that information is more precious than gold. It's like when we think, well, God needs to entrust me with things. He should give me a big pile of gold. <laughs> That's not how it works. He's trusted you with his son. That's a weighty thing. 
You have the power, you have the knowledge to look at a friend or a coworker or a family member and you have the power to help them understand how their lives can be changed for eternity. That's a weighty thing. We've been entrusted with the message of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 5 it says, We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. God makes his appeal through us. Isn't that incredible? We are given the, the ambassadorship of God. So Paul says in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, Therefore I implore you on behalf of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul is saying, I have been given this weighty thing, the gospel that is really, really precious and it can change lives and it's way more important than anything in your bank account. So I'm imploring you, be reconciled to God because God needs, God has asked me to be his ambassador. He doesn't need me, but he's given me this privilege, this gift to be his ambassador. And so the message of the gospel is a weighty thing. Baptism is a weighty thing. Maybe you're not familiar with what baptism is. Maybe for you, baptism might have been something a little bit different. A lot of people are baptized when they're infants and they, they've never really searched the scriptures to find out what baptism is about. Let me walk you through why I think baptism is a weighty thing. Every believer in Jesus Christ is commanded to be baptized. Did you know that? If you know Christ is your savior, Jesus expects you to be baptized at some point afterwards. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is our commission. This is why we're here today and not over at Fountain View. God has commanded us to participate in baptism. And so we do. Baptism is your opportunity to proclaim that you have faith in Jesus Christ. It's your opportunity to share with others who Jesus is to you. In Acts 8 and verse 12, the Bible says, When they believed Philip, this is a group of people listening to Philip preach, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and in the name of Jesus Christ, then they were baptized, both men and women. In scripture, you'll always follow, you'll always find this formula. They believed and they were baptized. Or they accepted the message and they were baptized. It's always in that order. It's never out of that order. They believe they were baptized. Do, do a, it's a wonderful uh, uh, activity you can do when you go home. Look up the word baptized and watch and see. They believed and they were baptized. They accepted his message and they were baptized. They repented and they were baptized. Always in that order. And so the reason we don't baptize little children or little infants is because they can't accept the message. They don't have that ability yet. We baptize because that is an expression of the repentance that has already taken place. It's an expression of the commitment that has already taken place at salvation. It's an expression of the belief that has already taken root in the heart at the moment of salvation. Baptism is a public declaration of the private decision to give my life to Jesus Christ. Even the picture you see in baptism screams of the gospel. When we stand in the water, it's a, it's a symbol. You'll, you'll hear the testimonies from those being baptized that they have given their life to Jesus. They're identifying with him. And so it's, it's, it's like they're saying they, they want to be, uh, they wanna be uh, totally sold out to Jesus in their walk. It's a mature step for them. And then I put them underwater. It's a symbol of them being, being, uh, dying with Christ, dying to self, dying with Jesus Christ. Holding them underwater for five or ten minutes is a symbol of them <laughs> dying with Christ or being buried with Christ. Just kidding, for those who are being baptized, it's no more than three and a half. And then coming up out of the water... It's, what do you think coming up out of the water is a symbol of? That's right, rebirth or being, 
brought back to life again. As Christ rose from the dead, you're being risen as, as in every way. You're giving, you're giving us a visible picture of your deep commitment to your belief in Jesus Christ. That's a weighty thing. And that's why we're out here. That's why we spent all this time setting all this up is because this is a weighty moment. And we want to make sure that we take time to observe it properly. Jesus commands our faith in him to be visible. And these waters of baptism, this is one of the best places where that is visible. In fact, if you've already been baptized or if you've not been baptized already, you should be praying about this. You should be praying, God, do you need me to be baptized? Do I need to do some homework, some research on this? Is Craig right? Do, do I really need to be baptized after I become a believer? Do some homework. My, my admonition to you is, don't even come to me and ask me. Just open the Bible. Hear it from God's word yourself. And you will see that every believer should be baptized as a public declaration of their faith in him. Jesus said it this way. These are not my favorite verses. Luke 9, verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Do you get that? If we're ashamed of him, he's ashamed of us. But if we're bold for him, oh man, that's like the opposite, right? So that's good. That's good. This baptism today reminds me of a verse in Romans where it's like the opposite of one, the one we just read. Listen to the words of Paul, all right? Paul is like not ashamed of anything. In fact, here he says, I am bold. I am not ashamed, Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And every person that stands in the baptismal pool today is saying the same thing. We are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. This is our moment to proclaim the most weighty thing that we have been given and trusted with, and that is the gospel message and that Jesus still saves today. For Daniel, the season that he's in is about to, to end. This remnant was about to return to Jerusalem. They'd been in exile because of their sin. They had neglected God. They, have, they had followed uh, their own sinful desires. They had been rebellious, they had been adulterous, they had been idolaters, they had been ungrateful to God, and God finally gives them over into captivity. They get carried off into captivity for 70 years. And I gotta tell you, it's not because he didn't try to grab them. He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet that would try and tell them, you, you better shape up because God's, God's not gonna put up with your rebellion forever. He sent them Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, on and on. All of these prophets to tell them, repent because bad things are coming if you don't. And they neglected and ignored them all. I, I, I got to think God is like every once in a while with us. He puts us in a timeout. <laughs> and while we're there, the objective is that our hearts will change. And for these Israelites, their hearts changed. I mean, when you put your kid into timeout, the behavior changes. That's good, right? You want the behavior to change. But wouldn't you rather have the heart change? Because the behavior will follow. God wants our hearts to change. And for Daniel, when you read this chapter, Daniel demonstrates an incredible heart on behalf of his people. Now they were about to come out of their timeout. Seventy years were older. They were going to come back. They were going to rebuild the temple. They were going to rebuild Jerusalem. And Daniel was praying, God, let their hearts have changed. Let us truly 
love you first and let us not rebel against you any longer. God, let the gospel stick. And I got to tell you, for everyone that's going to be baptized today, that's my personal prayer for them and for you, church, is that the gospel would stick, that the message of Jesus Christ would stick and that we would change. And not because of anything we get in return, but simply because the God who loves us has entrusted us with these weighty things. So how about you? Can you be trusted with these things? Are you a trustworthy person that Jesus can give these things to and know that you will take them and you'll make more of them? One of the commands in Scripture that I, I love is the fifth command, that we would honor our parents. Do you know what that means? That means to take everything your parents have given to you and make more of it. Make them proud of you. When do you stop being a child? You never. When do you stop being a son or a daughter? Never. You're always going to be somebody's son or daughter. Even after they're gone from this earth, you're still their son or daughter. You wear their name. And when you wear that name, you want to make them proud. I think about that way. That's a good way to explain our relationship with the Lord. He gives us his son, Jesus Christ. He changes our name. And we now bear the responsibility of being a proper ambassador for Jesus Christ. Is that cool? Yeah. Well, that's a message of baptism.